Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am coming to you from sunny, warm uh, Palo Alto, California. Eat your heart out, Corey Shockey. I am uh, so jealous. I, I can just imagine. I'm sitting here. I'm overlooking the bay, uh, which is just a lovely shade of kind of brown. Uh, <laughs> and as you can tell, we have joining us on this episode in London, England, Corey Shockey recently returned from a big dinner of reindeer meat in Finland, I understand. <laughs> uh, That's right. Exactly. And we have in Washington, D.C., uh, not only David Sanger of the New York Times, but our special guest for this episode, one of our favorite people in the whole world, uh, Anna <laughs> Fifield, who is the Washington Post Beijing bureau chief, um, who's managed to get Beijing to block the Washington Post throughout China. Congratulations, Anna. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. And and <laughs> welcome to the club, Anna. We've yeah. been banned for so many years that I was beginning to question your journalism for the fact that they were allowing you to keep, keep let the Chinese keep reading it. <laughs> yes, well, we finally joined the club. We made it. Yeah. Well, I give you all credit, Anna. And of course, one of the things we're here to discuss is Anna's brand new book, The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un, which uh, is out right now and is, well, I'm not going to characterize it. David, how would you characterize the book? Okay, so I would characterize this as, simply put, the best book I have ever read about Kim Jong-un. And I came to it thinking to myself, come on, how much more do we have to say about this guy other than his like bad haircut and um, his penchant for going out and giving guidance, you know, at missile factories and all that. And then with every page, Anna's teaching me something I didn't know about this guy from where he grew up to his lonely uh, childhood to uh, the bizarre way that he uh, got rid of his uh, his uh, various relatives uh, along the way. So it's just a fabulous read. And in the typical Anna way, it's a fun read. Hmm, That's so kind of you, David. Thank you. But I have to ask, how many other books about Kim Jong-un have you read? You know, (laughs) I have read read other books about North Korea that dealt some with them. But, you know, all I can say is this compares incredibly well because those books put you right to sleep. So there you go. And Anna, Anna, you're just at the beginning of your book tour. You (laughs) don't blow up rave reviews in the presence of a great reviewer. Look, it's just my humble New Zealand way. I'm so, like to have David Sanger talking about my book in that way, I just can't cope. Okay, well, let's let's try this over again. Corey, how would you characterize Anna's book? I would characterize Anna's book as um, the movie that actually should have been made or should yet be made about just how weird and crazy and and um, violent and kind of shielded from normal human interaction and feedback Kim Jong-un is. Uh, and See, I thought you were about so, to say all those things and then say, and violent as Anna is. <laughs> uh, it's such a good book. And I agree with David that it clips right along and... It doesn't trivialize the real danger and creepiness um, of him, but it also um, is, it's funny in funny parts. 
so I thought it was just wonderful. I too learned a bunch about it. Um, I'm so curious, how did you do your research for this book? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it was reporting that I was doing during the course of my job in terms of talking to people who had escaped from North Korea and finding out what they had, um, you know, their experience of living under him had been. But I also set out a few years ago to try to meet every person who'd ever met uh, Kim Jong-un. And so that was relatively easy at the beginning because there weren't that many people, right? And I, you know, no encounter with Kim Jong-un was too trivial for me to hunt that person down. So I found people in South Korea who'd, uh, you know, met him for 10 seconds at his father's funeral. But I was just after any insight they could provide. Uh, but obviously during the course of the reporting, it became somewhat easier and that there were a whole bunch of Americans and South Koreans had met him. But, um, you know, a lot of these interactions were quite superficial and Kim Jong-un was clearly, you know, putting on his game face. So it was difficult to kind of scratch the surface of that, but um, I gave it my best shot. Well, this is how you came to have the lifelong friendship you do with Dennis Rodman. Is that correct? <laughs> I talked to a lot of the people who went with Dennis Rodman on his trips. Um, and that was certainly a very bizarre episode uh, in, the, in the Kim Jong-un biography. Yes. Anna, can I ask you two questions about, about Kim sure. that came out of, of the, the, my reading of it? Um, uh, well, the first is you left us hanging on the great mystery of whether or not he is a regular listener of Deep State Radio. <laughs> yeah. Are you having him on the podcast next week, aren't you, David? I, I, I think I, I think I, David was going to, but the Treasury Department told him that was sanctionable. <laughs> but, but my second right. and deeper question is, you know, I, I was fascinated by your description of his life growing up around um, the beach area at Wonsan, which, where he now apparently um, keeps a summer home even grander than David Rothkoff's. And, um, uh, and what's fascinating about that is that's also a big missile launch area for them. In fact, those missiles that were launched a few weeks ago were right from there. And as I was reading, I was trying to figure out is there is there any reason is there any real connection between the fact that his sort of favorite corner of North Korea is also the one from which he launches missiles, or is that just happenstance? Well, it's kind of both. There has been a like a big military kind of area around there at Wonsan, but he has certainly sought to trying to combine his two passions there, I guess. And there was even one instance where there was a missile launch. He didn't even have to leave his beachfront residence for it. He sat there in the window and the, his rocket forces uh, rolled out the missiles and launched them from an island just across from where he was sitting. So maybe it's uh, partly convenience, but there also also has been this history there of Wonsan Kalma area being uh, being a, a launch site and a military exercise site. So many of the um, sea exercises and things have all happened around here. There. Well, let me let me ask you a question. And I would, by the way, add that I think it's uh, not just the best book I've read on Kim Jong Un, but uh, if you if anybody wants to understand the relationship with North Korea right now, because the role Kim Jong-un plays, um, this is the book you've got to read. And I also feel that, you know, one of the things that distinguishes the book, besides being very lively and and sort of realizing um, both the egregiously bad, sometimes demented aspects of life in North Korea and 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 the kind of theater of the absurd that sometimes surrounds Kim Jong-un is that you also offer a kind of uh, assessment of Kim Jong-un that is not the typical one that we at least started out with. In other words, he's done pretty well since he took over at age 27. He's pretty smart. He's pretty canny. Things are a little bit better for the people there. He's certainly trying to, to change uh, some things that are you know, within the country, not in you know, not it's 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 not uh, in any jeopardy of 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 becoming a Jeffersonian democracy uh, or of even reform. But but he is he has not failed as the leader in the context of traditional North Korean leadership. And that brings me to the question, which is, 
doing your research, as you were doing your research, the relationship between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un took place. It, it mm -hmm. began and it evolved. And, and I'm just wondering how you heard Trump's assessments of Kim Jong-un in the context of the Kim Jong-un you were getting to know writing the book. Yeah, I mean, I think President Trump's assessments of Kim Jong-un have often been quite galling um, to hear him to talk about how, you know, there are a lot of other rough places out there or that he's doing a good job, he's a strong leader and things. It ignores or doesn't take any account whatsoever of the way that he's managed to hold on to power. It's not just that he's savvy and canny and has maneuvered through all of these various interests in North Korea, but he's done so by having his own uncle hauled out of a Politburo meeting and then executed in front of, you know, other senior figures. Uh, he had his own defense minister hauled out and, you know, if the intelligence is correct, shot to smithereens by an anti-aircraft gun, uh, which would have left him in a pulp and uh, you know, provided a pretty powerful deterrent message to anybody who was watching at the time. So, And then there's the brutality that he continues to inflict on a daily basis on the general North Korean population and this uh, culture of repression and fear that he operates with. So all of these factors play into the same you know, this is all part of the same equation that Donald Trump is seeing. So maybe that Donald Trump is using very flowery words to describe the canny part of it, but he has never acknowledged uh, the less savory side of the way Kim Jong-un holds on to power. Is there any truth to the rumor that the Pyongyang um, literary supplement gives this four anti-aircraft guns as a, as a <laughs> That would be just the endorsement I'd be after for this book. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I'm just waiting for the uh, Korean state media to call me human scum. You know, that's that's the review we need. Yeah, well, Sanger calls me that all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, the difference is you don't believe the Korean media. No, no, but I believe, I believe. <laughs> Well done, David. Uh, but but I, but I believe you, David. Um, Corey, Corey, as you as you look at this, you know, we sort of have come to see this relationship with North Korea as a kind of bilateral dance between Kim and and Trump. Um, but you have the perspective of viewing this from, from the point of view of, of Europe. Uh, and I'm wondering how the people that you are dealing with on a daily basis there focus on this or or if it seems a peripheral issue at, at the moment in the context of Europe? I think most Europeans uh, don't pay nearly as much attention to, to problems in Asia as the United States does. And so the U.S. Uh, being in range of North Korea's uh, missiles that could carry nuclear weapons uh, the aggressive testing by the North Koreans, the effort to peel the United States away from its allied commitments. I think all of those weren't nearly as alarming for Europeans as they were for, say, uh, South Korea, Australia, Japan, and others in Asia. Uh, it, it looks to me like I'm not sure the North Koreans were scared by the Trump administration's recklessness, first in ramping up attention to the North Korean problem, but then threatening a preventative attack on the North Korean nuclear program if they didn't get a deal. I'm not sure that scared North Korea, but I'm sure it scared South Korea. And they look to be the American ally that is doing most to hedge against um, the recklessness of the Trump administration. But, uh, but the parentheses is that the person who has said the stupidest, most reckless thing about security on the Korean peninsula is actually not Donald Trump. It's EU foreign policy head Federica Mogherini, who during the height of tensions over the potential for a U.S. military strike a year ago, Federica Mogherini published an op-ed piece in the South Korean newspaper saying that 
you know, Europe was now South Korea's security partner of choice. And that's exactly the kind of tiresome posturing that is unhelpful and that the Europeans excel at from time to time. And so uh, on the one hand, Europeans aren't as worried as they probably ought to be about problems in Asia because China isn't just rising for the United States. China's rising for Europe, too. Um, and they're going to have to deal with the consequences and the choices that the U.S. makes about whether it defends allies as that grows costlier in a world of proliferating technologies. David, you know, you've been covering this for a long time, and and most recently the the you U.S. Mean since Anna was a small girl, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I, I wasn't trying to say that, but it's true. Uh, um, uh, but, but most recently we've, you know, we've, we've seen the U S North Korea conversation essentially grind to a halt. We have subsequently, uh, learned in a variety of conflicting reports, but some that appear to be true to some degree that the North Korean negotiating team, um, was at least partially purged as a result of of the where the U.S. North Korean negotiations went, we've heard that the U.S. isn't really engaging, talking to the North Koreans right now. Um, uh, are, 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 have we kind of, you know, sort of entered a dead zone in this relationship that's likely to continue for a while? Do you think? And then I'll turn uh, to Anna to get her take. Yeah, I do, and I'd be interested to hear uh, Anna on this on this issue. Um, I think they're stuck, and I think that as they get, we get closer to the presidential election here, it's going to get riskier and riskier for President Trump to get into another negotiation with Kim, because if it goes nowhere, as the Hanoi uh, negotiation uh, went nowhere, it would look like the failure of what he has designated as his biggest single um, diplomatic uh, initiative. And I, I actually was, as you remember, a, a fan of his trying this approach, because for three decades, we have seen American presidents try an incremental approach of talking to uh, North Korean uh, diplomats who were scared to death to give away anything. And as a result, we got no place and had various crises and violations. So I thought that Trump's instinct of starting with Kim was a good one. But he went into it without a full plan of what they would do and, of course, took a vague statement in Singapore a year ago. Uh, uh, actually, it's a year ago this week um, and um, declared that the problem was over when it wasn't remotely over and when he sort of got got taken to the cleaners by uh, by Chairman Kim, who uh, who had simply declared that he was willing to denuclearize, but didn't the president didn't pay attention to how the how Kim uh, defined that term. Um, what's happened since Hanoi is that the United States has been told that everybody they negotiated with below Kim's level is basically no longer on the job. And there have been various reports, all unconfirmed, that some of them have been executed. We actually have never been able to confirm that, and I doubt it's true. But it's certainly true that they are no longer part of the negotiating team. And that has left the Americans wondering who to go talk to. So maybe there's a back channel going on of some kind. Uh, but if so, we haven't seen much evidence of it. And I can't believe that the president's staff would let uh, President Trump get out there and go into another, a third unstructured conversation, hoping that he'd emerge from it with something. So, Anna, what's your take on where we are in all this now? Yeah, I mean, I agree with David there. And I also thought that this was worth a shot just simply because the efforts of the last 25 years had not been successful and it was time to start something different, try something different. I think now, like, Kim Jong-un wants to go back to these talks. He looks at this and, you know, this is where he has 
invested, you know, before the summit in Hanoi, North Korea did something quite unusual in that they announced that Kim Jong-un was going, which they don't usually do. They usually wait till it's happened and then they announce it. So they see how it goes. So he was obviously feeling quite confident going into this. And obviously things did not go as anybody expected there. Uh, but having said that, I think he does want to continue on this process. He's continued to issue like all the right conciliatory kind of um, statements about this and talked about, you know, encoded North Korean way to talk about how the US should change its calculations. But that's kind of an invitation back to talks, because I think he knows that he has this very finite window of opportunity right now. The South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, will be out of office in 2022, and he is, has really been the mediator and the person who brought all of this together in the first place. So he has an important role here. But also, Kim Jong-un doesn't know how long Trump is going to be in office. And Trump is, if nothing else, a very unconventional American president, you know, somebody who's been willing to try things that other presidents have not. So I think he sees an opportunity to try to press ahead with this and to get some kind of deal while Trump is still uh, still in office. And one of the little uh, tidbits that I picked up during the reporting of this book was that the North Korean diplomats in New York actually consulted with a fortune teller, a Korean fortune teller, to find out whether President Trump would be re-elected in 2020. <laughs> um, because this is figuring into their timeline. Uh, and I can tell you right now that the answer was yes. So maybe the North Koreans have a little more time than they had feared, but I still think that they do have a sense that the clock is ticking. Hey, David, just as a programming note, have we ever tried to get the fortune teller on the deep state? Don't you think that'd be a good? <laughs> I mean, it would be at least as expert as everybody else we have opining on this issue. <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I think it's a brilliant programming idea. And the first thing I would do is go out and buy some chickens and, and, and cut them open, and I'll see what we can and maybe And maybe, maybe an anti-aircraft gun. Yeah, maybe that may be how we do it. Um, well, that's very depressing news on the fortune teller front. Um, and I, I'm wondering, Corey, as we look forward at this relationship, um, we're, we're, we're kind of in a, a period maybe where there's stasis, but from what Anna says, and I think, by the way, it makes some sense, I, I expect there's going to be a bit of a flurry of activity um, from people who think they can make a deal with Trump because Trump needs a deal before the election, uh, or because they want to make a deal with Trump because they don't think they're going to get as good a deal after the election. And I'm just wondering how you think that context might affect all of this. Uh, and in particular, John Bolton. Uh, so one of the things that has been so interesting about uh, about the North Korean negotiations is that Bolton is clearly an outlier in the administration with his views on North Korea and much closer to the perspective that H.R. McMaster, Bolton's predecessor, had or appeared to have. Um, and, and the North Koreans are vituperative about it. They badmouth him. They suggest they're going to call off meetings if he's involved in anything. And the president appears to respond to that by marginalizing Bolton from the conversation. He he wasn't at the dinner um, with the North Koreans, although he was present. And the North Koreans keep saying that, you know, this is going to get so much worse if you keep doing this. And so it's really interesting how, how the ease with which the president throws his own guys under the bus, I guess it shouldn't be surprising to us. Uh, but but it is for me. The second thing about Bolton is that, you know, he has been talking very tough about, you know, the use of military force in Iran and Korea, um, the potential for deploying U.S. military troops to Venezuela. And the president again and again undercuts that. And so I think actually everybody... The lesson I would be learning if I were an adversary of the United States is play the president into marginalizing the people whose views uh, don't suit you and butter up the president because that's what he seems to respond to best. Hey, David, could I add on something that, to that? Because I think that um, Corey has 
diagnose this just right. The, the only one who in the administration who may be harder over than John Bolton on North Korea is Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state who's, who's uh, you know, in charge of conducting the negotiation. And we believe that at Hanoi, uh, both Mr. Bolton and Mr. Pompeo were voices of restraint to the president saying he couldn't sign a deal that would only partially um, uh, solve the problem of what Kim had suggested was closing down the main nuclear facility at Yongbyon, which she never really defined what that included, but leaving lots of other uh, facilities outside of Yongbyon open and running. And I think that Bolton's strategy at this point is he recognizes he can't block the president from dealing with Kim, but he also believes that this negotiation will fail. And so I think he's sort of biding his time, focusing on Iran and Venezuela and a few of his other passions and sort of waiting for this to get to the moment where he can go into the president and say, I told you so that he'd never give this stuff up and then get back to where he's wanted to be all along. Well, Anna, as now the world's leading expert on Kim Jong-un. Yes. This episode of Deep State Radio is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography or creative writing to design, productivity, leadership, and more. So whether you're returning to a longtime passion project or you're challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone or you're simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes for you. Some of our folks here have actually taken the classes at Skillshare on things like iPhone photography and I'm told, although not surprised, mixology. Uh, And they've got several leadership courses in their queue. So I I think we've found that these courses, which are taught by experts and are very professional, are also entertaining. They're very engaging. They take less than an hour. uh, And it can be a great tool for exploring new interests. So Why don't you join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer that's just for Deep State Radio listeners. If you sign up right now, you can get two months for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Deep State Radio listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, just go to Skillshare.com slash Deep State. That's Skillshare.com slash deep state and start your two free months right now. That's skillshare.com slash deep state. What's the deal that he might try to cut before Trump, Trump's reelection bid? Uh, I mean, it's in his interest, really, to make this as slow as possible, right? as drawn out as possible, and to get the, you know, the goods up front. And the, what he wants right now, what they asked for in Hanoi, was relief from the sanctions that were opposed in 2016 and 17 in response to those um, missile and nucle- launches and nuclear tests. Because I think what he is looking for now, uh, having completed, as he says, his nuclear program, is economic development. So he needs those sanctions to be gone. Uh, And China, surprisingly, uh, China is still implementing sanctions quite strictly on the border between North Korea and uh, and China at the moment, even though, you know, diplomacy has taken hold uh, compared to what was happening in 2017. So he, yeah, is going to try to get Donald Trump uh, to give up as much as possible, to sign a peace treaty, to make sure that the military exercises that happen with South Korea every year do not resume, uh, and to get those sanctions lifted so he can kind of get to a relatively normal state. And if he can get to that, then that will take off a lot of the pressure, and then he can go slow for the rest of the time. What do you think, Corey? That sounds like you know, I, I think Trump would take that deal. Yeah, I the point that David made a few minutes ago about uh, uh, you know Trump uh, needing a deal and wanting to get deals done. I I think we're already there. You know, Trump already wants that outcome, and the challenge is uh, 
you know, it's hard to get it's hard to get people to make deals with him, in part because as our wonderful next door neighbors, the Mexicans, learned this week, um, President Trump doesn't think having a deal should prevent him from uh, renegotiating the deal. Right. So so is there any deal that's ever going to be um, enforceable, is ever going to be, uh, you know, concluded and not reconsidered? So I think yeah, the Iranians have views on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Understandably so. Um, so I think it's going to be actually really hard for him to get people to engage. And that does worry me that it could cause a return to the tough talk, unenforced tough talk that we heard from the Trump administration under McMaster and that Bolton favors. And I think there's one other risk out here. I'd, I'd be interested to hear if, if Anna thinks this is one as well, which is, you know, what does President Trump care about the most? You know, what he uh, hears on TV and reads in a few newspapers evaluating his work. That's why he was so angry this past weekend when The Times ran a story saying he hadn't gotten anything out of the Mexicans they hadn't agreed to in, you know, several months ago. In the North Korea context, I think what ultimately held him back was the fear that he would read that he had basically um, been blindsided by Kim, that he had agreed to. Uh, uh, lift sanctions in return for solving just a part of the nuclear problem. And of course, it's this president who tweeted out before he took office that he was going to solve the whole nuclear problem. Um, and that's going to be increasingly hard uh, to do because he didn't even get with from Kim what President Obama got out of the Iranians, which was a freeze in production of new nuclear material. So while we've been sitting here arguing back and forth about uh, whether negotiations would start up or not. Mr. Kim is doing what Mr. Kim has always done. He's producing more nuclear material. He's uh, building more missiles. He's digging more tunnels to keep those missiles in places that we can't hit them. So that when there's actually is a negotiation, if one happens, he's going to have a more established nuclear state. And it's not a bad situation for him, apart from the sanctions, as, as Corey pointed out before. So, yeah, Anna, I David wanted your perspective. What's your perspective? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Like, time is on his side in that respect, that he is able to continue. You know, he has, even if he gave up some hardware right now, he still has the capability to continue to make these missiles. And if anything that we saw during 2017 was that he had, uh, you know, parts to burn, he was able to get all of the missile components that he needed to keep firing these things off left, right and center. So, you know, if he was to go to be able to go to back to that or just to freeze where he is now, uh, that would still leave him with the capacity to do this in future. So I could definitely see him cutting a deal like the Iran deal would be a perfect example for the kind of thing that he wants, where he keeps everything that he's got. He doesn't have to relinquish anything. He just has to make a promise about it. And uh, as we've seen before with North Koreans, it's very easy to break their promises if the if the situation changes, which, of course, is why there's all this mistrust about North Korea uh, in the first place. Well, it's also right. kind of a formula that the that that Trump likes, where there's a kind of a chapeau of a big promise that's way in the future and hard to enforce, and then underneath it, you know, the real tangible working parts are much less than meets the eye. Um, right. I mean, I think it's like not really the wisest course to be looking at the nuclear program and the missile program from the get-go. I mean, obviously, that's the main point of concern for the United States. But they could start with something much easier, like a liaison office between Pyongyang and Washington, just so they could communicate more regularly. Like now, because, you know, it is such a difficult thing for them to communicate, partly for reasons like you described, that they North Koreans keep getting rid of their negotiators. Um, but, you know, the there are a number of kind of confidence building measures and steps that they could take in the meantime that don't require any of these grand bargain situations. So it's kind of puzzling to me that they haven't picked some of this low hanging fruit, first of all. All right. Let Did me anybody else read that article? I'm sorry, David. Did anybody else read that article, that crazy article about the uh, hotline uh, in the DMZ 
between the Americans and the yeah, North the Koreans. Wall Street Journal article. That was so. I yeah. you know I'd love to know what you thought of that. That sounded so crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, just so fascinating though. But like that's like that's what I mean by low hanging fruit, right? The bar is so low. There has been so little communication between these two sides for decades that yeah, having a guy talking about basketball on or you know going to see his girlfriend or whatever on a hotline between North and South. I mean, that's progress. I mean, it's not much, but it's better than nothing, right? So I think if they can do more of that kind of thing, it's worth a try. So, but the, the downside yeah, but to I doing... Agree, I agree that the president, right? Like, why is President Trump going to be interested in that? Well, he, the, the one reason that he might be is that President Trump is out there right now to distract from whether or not he's accomplished his central goal, which is denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. And so every time that there is a piece of progress, an economic interchange or whatever, uh, they're citing that as, you know, great progress. And the, the way that uh, you sort of ask the question to the administration is you go back and say, well, that's fine. But all those things happened in the Obama administration and they happened in the Bush administration. And before that, they happened in the Clinton administration. And so what's different and of course, what's different here is that they promised that they wouldn't get into the the salami slicing that they viewed as the central error of those previous presidents. And of course, that's likely to be where they're forced back fairly soon. Anna, let me ask you one last question on this, and then I want to switch for the last 10 minutes or so and talk about US-China, just because we've got you here. But how much agency do you feel Kim Jong-un has in these negotiations? You know, the U.S., a lot of the coverage is Trump wants this, Trump wants that, or Bolton wants this, or Pompeo wants that, and it's all about us. And Kim Jong-un's this chubby little dude who um, he's either crazy or canny, but, but we're not in the room. When you get in the room with Kim Jong-un, to what extent is he driving the conversation with Donald Trump or listening? To what extent is he playing the role of a creative spark in the direction that these things take in your sort of sense of this? I mean, he is deciding every little thing about these summit meetings, about these talks. They, I mean, you'd have to be a very brave official in North Korea to make any decision whatsoever on behalf of this leader, for starters. I mean, look what's happened with these current negotiators. But like during the preparations for the first summit in Singapore, when the two sides were meeting uh, in the DMZ, part of the reason that it took so long is that the Americans would show up and, you know, present some a uh, proposal or some idea, the North Koreans would then have to go and like hop in their cars, drive back to Pyongyang two hours or so up a pothole road and uh, and brief Kim Jong-un and ask for further direction on this instruction. Like he has been involved in the nitty gritty right down to every, you know, the last detail, the details about the, what was on the menu at the summit. So he was involved in this. So he has really staked you know, his leadership and, you know, his legitimacy on these talks uh, and everything going right. So, yeah, we shouldn't underestimate how invested he is in this. Well, let me turn the conversation just a little bit. We've got about 10 minutes to go here. Corey, when we did our first episode of the year, as we do around the first episode of the year, <laughs> I was like, well, you know, what could really go wrong? You know, what's the flashpoint in the world you're worried about? And, um, you said South China Sea. I think you could actually see something quite extreme in the South China Sea before the end of the year. I don't think you particularly predicted, you know, U.S. and Russian warships colliding in the East China Sea, which um, is you know, <laughs> something we've seen in the past week. But, but I'm just wondering, as you look at that situation now, the U.S. and China more tense on the trade front, the Chinese looking like they're hunkering down on that. Uh, we've got sort of stasis in North Korea and the growing tensions associated with that. Um, just wondering, as you, as you review the situation from mid-year, what's your outlook on that? My outlook is even grimmer than it was at the uh, start of the year for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that 
um, the Chinese, you know, the best line that the Trump administration has gotten off on any subject is uh, them pointing out that the Chinese, that Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, promised President Obama standing in the Rose Garden that they were not going to militarize the islands they were building in the South China Sea. And they so obviously did and continue to do so. And and that's what the United States keeps saying. How can we trust you on anything? Because, uh, wow, you're sure making all of us nervous. At the Shangri-La Dialogue, the IISS gathering of defense leaders from across the U.S., Europe, and Asia, uh, that just happened two weeks ago, uh, China's defense minister uh, said, we're not, uh, we're not aggressive in the South China Sea. That's all our territory. And, and they've got this crazy story um, that the United States precipitated them doing this because, you see, freedom of navigation, innocent passage by ships in international waters, um, was the problem because the reason they were building islands was to protect the coral undersea that, you know, that they're e ecology minded. And so these Chinese scientists and do-gooder NGOs go to these little outcroppings in the South China Sea, but then you have to build some stuff to support them. And these American ships go by and That's they That's why get they were so blowing scared. up all that coral, right? <laughs> yeah. And they, these scientists get so scared that they want the Chinese government to protect them. And, and so we're to blame for this whole thing. And just the brazenness of making that argument in a room full of 650 Asian security experts where nobody believed him and he didn't care suggests to me that um, either they are really far down the rabbit hole of self-justification, in which case they are going to miss the signals uh, that prevent an incident from becoming a war, or second, uh, they so don't care they, that they think uh, that either we won't fight to defend our allies or they can win a war if we come to it. And that's a very destabilizing uh, proposition. The good news in all of this is that the American Navy, the principal actor in the, on our side in this, has been incredibly disciplined, incredibly professional, and not allowing themselves to be provoked either by the Chinese or the Russians. Well, David, what's, I mean, we only have five, six minutes. I go to you and then I'll go to Anna for the last word on this. What's, what's your take? My view is, you know, that in the dichotomy Corey just placed, the, it's, it's, it's squarely B. I think the Chinese think this is our territory. We're going to treat it as our territory. Nobody's really going to mess with us over these tiny little islands. And the sooner the world gets with the program, the better. I think the Chinese have made a pretty good calculation here. Um, the U.S. may continue to do the patrols. I'm sure they were the Freedom of Navigation patrols. But let's face it, no American president, Democrat or Republican, is going to draw a line out there to uh, defend a section of ocean that has no human beings on it, that it's been long disputed, and where the Chinese have created islands. It's not as if they have taken over existing territory. They've actually created territory and staked it out themselves. And I think they have calculated no one's going to challenge us. And I think they've got that exactly right. I think that the flashpoint for the U.S. and China, while it, it may play itself out if somebody does something undisciplined out there, is actually in the battle right now over that we've discussed before over 5G and the effort by the United States to basically put a major Chinese telecom company out of business, certainly prohibit it from doing business in the U.S. and try to prohibit it from doing a business elsewhere. And I see, I think the Chinese view that as the area where they have vulnerability. I don't think they think they have any vulnerability in the South China Sea, and I think they're right. Yeah, if, if you were going to recommend to anybody a book on the current state of cyber tension in the world, would it be by any chance 
the perfect weapon? <laughs> modesty, modesty forbids me from answering that question. Uh, well, that's why I recommended it because I think you're right. I, you know, Anna, I think we, you know, security experts tend to talk about the South China Sea or the East China Sea, but the reality is, you know, this situation is probably going to take care of itself the way David described. Rhetoric aside, but this issue of tension over trade and technology, IP, investment in technology, the future of Huawei, this is a much bigger deal for the Chinese. And it's not clear that they, they necessarily will get their way on this. That's right. I mean, I think that Corey and David are both right and that China doesn't care what people think about the South China Sea. As, I mean, that's their MO as well. Like, in Xinjiang, like they will brazenly say these are re-education camps or vocational training camps that we're conducting here. You know, just like the defense minister at the Shangri-La dialogue, just like brazenly lying and not caring, you know, that it's obvious that they're lying. I mean, the same way, look at Hong Kong and a million people on the streets. They will happily just ignore those million people and push through what they want to do there. But on Huawei, I think that part of the reason they are so energized about this is because they feel powerless about what they can do about it. I mean, this arrest of Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver Airport, the you know Huawei princess, has really shocked China uh, because, as someone once said to me, it's like uh, as if China had uh, arrested Ivanka Trump and was trying to extradite her. This is her. She's corporate royalty, political royalty in China. So for the US to be seeking her extradition, Meng Wanzhou's extradition from Canada is a, just uh, has incensed the Chinese uh, power players there. Um, so, I mean, I don't see an end in sight to this now because China's really digging in uh, on the Huawei fight very aggressively. And it's really like one of the things that continues to, or constantly surprises me in China is the extent to which this whole idea of that this is containment. This is a, American attempts to contain China's rise. Like This is a very pervasive school of thought, even amongst people who you would think would uh, not know better or not, not fall for this line so easily, that there is this really strong view that this is all part of an American attempt to stop China from, uh, you know, growing stronger and more advanced and being able to rival uh, America on the world stage. So this is like a real battle, uh, hegemonic battle that I think has got no easy end or fast end. You know, that brings to mind um, a great book that I read about similar transitions, Safe Passage, the transition from <laughs> <laughs> John by by Dr. Corey Shockey. Um, also, by the way, for those of you who are, are looking at, at debates over this, I encourage you to go back a year or so to go to Corey's famous debate with Graham Allison over the Thucydides trap, <laughs> um, which will go into the podcasting uh, hall of fame as soon as they establish one. Um, uh, but in, in any event- It was such it was, a fun argument. It was such a, and you, you, you know, I mean, David is very friendly with Graham Allison, as are we all. Um, but I think you you did yourself proud in that in that debate. Um, hey, without, thank you. Without taking anything away from Graham. Um, in any event, what have we concluded at the end of this episode? Well, Safe Passage is a good book. The Perfect Weapon is a good book. But the book for the moment is the great successor. Um, Anna's here, here. book. On, Thank you very I, much. Kim Jong Un, the great successor, the divinely. By the way, it's got a great cartoon image on the front. That actually, one day I want to take that picture of Kim Jong Un in sunglasses and put it next to a picture of David Rothkopf in sunglasses. And I think we ought to run like a deep state radio competition about can can we tell which yeah, one? who wore it better? Who wore it better? <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, and I, I I'm I'm willing to do that if you're willing to join the the the, the beauty contest, David. Uh, <laughs> um. Uh, but I, uh, I, uh, I would say that um, if 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 the if you score points for double chins, Kim Jong Un is going to win. 
<laughs> that is de that is definitely true. Yeah. There's there's yeah. no no question. May I ask about one it. quick final question of Anna? Something that I've always wondered. Yes. Um, sure. Given what a fatty Kim Jong Un is, wow. how does that play in North Korea, a place that has experienced famine and widespread malnutrition? Is this I just you know, want, his I just equivalent want that our of friend... the Assad family putting statues up of themselves? That is, mm -hmm. I crushed you, or or how does this play? I no, just want to clear that yeah. that that uh, that that our good good friend Corey is body shaming people on Deep State Radio, even if they're foreign <laughs> leaders. No, no, I'm perfectly Asia, happy to body shame Kim Jong-un. Yeah, but it's not shameful. In Asia, you know, being fat is a sign of wealth and richness and power. So, I mean, that is, you know, just a sign of what a, a literally big guy he is here. I mean, I'm sure people uh, in the rest of the country notice that he is twice or three times the size of the rest of them but you'd have to be a very brave person in north korea to pipe up about that there will be no body shaming from the north korean right. populace that's for sure yeah no i i you know i've lived through this experience and i have to tell you when you're in china and somebody comes up and says you look extremely prosperous i immediately reach <laughs> for the bowl of hemlock um, <laughs> <laughs> not, it's not what you it's not what you want to hear um, well, th thank you for for adding that element of body shaming to the show Corey um, and in fact we're going to launch a new podcast called body shaming dictators and uh, you know next up Mohammed bin Salman in any event um, we appreciate everybody joining us here Anna, I wish you the best of luck with the book and on the book tour. Congratulations on the book. Thank uh, you, David. Thank you, everybody, for your kind words. They're, they're all true. They're all true. And Corey and David, of course, we'll see you again very soon on upcoming episodes of Deep State Radio. And for those of you who want more, including, for example, our a podcast we did earlier this week, uh, which is a one-on-one -on -one conversation with uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School, uh, or upcoming conversations we are going to have, um, go to the dsrnetwork.com, look them up, read some of the stuff that we've got, become a member, uh, and come back soon for more from the DSR Network. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>